We'll hear argument next, number 00957, Kansas versus Michael Crane. Mr. Chief Justice, thank you, and may it please the Court. The Kansas Supreme Court has erroneously read this Court's decision in Kansas v. Hendricks as requiring a showing that a potentially sexually violent predator cannot control his behavior and that such a requirement has supplemented the two requisites for civil commitment that this Court has approved in and since the Addington case. Those two requirements, as you know, are mental illness and dangerousness. The volitional impairment that the Kansas Supreme Court has ruled was constitutionally required for civil commitment ignores the fact that psychological disorders, such as antisocial personality, can impair an individual in behavior, cognitive, perceptual, emotional, and even intellectual capacities. This Court has never indicated that there's anything constitutionally significant about a volitional impairment. There was a good deal of reference in our Hendricks opinion to the, to the apparent fact that the person there had was volitionally impaired. You're saying that was descriptive rather than essential to the holding? I, I'm saying it was descriptive. Mr. Hendricks had uh, apparently, and according to himself only, an inability to control his own behavior. And so when the majority wrote about um, Mr. Hendricks, they used that kind of a description. Well, but we also relied on prior authority that made some reference to lack of control. I don't think that uh, what was done by the court below was totally off the wall in light of what was said in our prior cases. What if there is some element, but perhaps not to that extent? How would you draw the line? Well, if this court says that there needs to be some volitional impairment displayed, we would suggest that it just be merely some impairment. To have a total impairment is something that the psychiatrist will even tell us is an impossible standard to show. I think that's the standard adopted in the court below that we're reviewing. I do. Total impairment. Mm -hmm. I do. Do you acknowledge that lack of ability to control uh, one's unlawful conduct and volitional impairment are one and the same thing? No, I do not. Suppose I'm delusional. And, and I think that, uh, that people I see are Satan. I'm fully able to control myself and, and do not attack people who are not Satan. But I think that some people are Satan. Your Honor, that's... Do you call that a lack of volitional control or, or delusion? I would consider that delusional and not a, va- a lack of volitional control. And the problem with the Kansas Supreme Court's decision is that it says the only thing that we consider is volitional impairment. But there are many kinds of impairments individuals have that are the result of their mental disorder. And so the Kansas court is necessarily limiting the psychiatric diagnosis to say only volitional impairment. What, what is there? Besides, I thought there could be cognitive impairments. Emot- I think Justice Scalia has described one. There could be emotional impairments, yes, and there could be volitional impairments. Now, is there any other category? Perceptual, intellectual. There, there are many kinds that are um, talked about within the psychiatric material. Is there uh, any are these kind that's relevant here other than volitional? Yes, I think they all are. Which? All of those that mm-hmm. we mentioned, and perhaps even relevant those... Relevant in this case? Not... W- no, yes, I'm yes. saying, is there any one relevant to the particular individual at issue here other than volition? I don't believe psychiatrists can tell us what it is that, what kind of impairment Mr. Crane has. They're not, the, the, the literature will say that psychiatrists can't tell whether or not Justice Scalia was acting because he's hallucinating or because it's some other volitional impairment, if it's an irresistible impulse, if you will, whether it's emotional, perceptual, intellectual, they can't tell. They can't get in somebody's mind, and what they have to do then is simply rely on what the individual says. 
Mr. Crane told this, the court below, he told the experts below, rather, he didn't testify, told the experts below that he could control his behavior. Mr. Hendricks had testimony that you referred to in the Hendricks decision that said he couldn't control his behavior. So because the psychiatrist can't make a determination objectively, we're left with the potential predator telling us who applies, who's eligible for this law, and who isn't. The other point I would make to this court is that Mr. Hendricks said, I can't control my urge to molest children. But he could. He never molested little children in front of their parents, never in front of his wife, never in front of law enforcement Well, but that's officers. not the premise that Hendricks proceeded upon. Now, now, now you're saying that uh, Hendricks rest, rested on an insecure factual assumption. Uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I don't understand. Well, uh, you, you're, are, are you trying to say that uh, what we said in Hendricks was, was dictum? Or just was, I, was wrong in the, in the context of that case? I'm certainly not saying you were wrong, Your Honor. I'm saying that you did not create a third constitutional standard, that the impairments that... Well, was the court under some misimpression as, as to Hendricks' ability to control himself? There was an evidence before this court that would say whether or not Hendricks suffered from a volitional impairment or not. All we have is what he himself but said. But that seems to me that we're back to square one. I... I one reading of Hendricks, and tell me if this is wrong, is that we want to find some measure of determining how dangerous this person is to society, because that's in the statute. And uh, because many criminals uh, are, have personality disorders and are dangerous to society, we want to narrow it somewhat. So we, so the court added this uh, volitional control aspect. Is that a fair reading of Hendricks? Your Honor, I don't believe it is, because Mr. Hendricks in particular didn't suffer from a personality disorder. He had what is classified under the Kansas statute as an abnormality mentally, and that was being pedophilia. The Kansas statute specifically says there are two kinds of impairment that we could look at there, emotional as well as volitional. Well, is the test... Uh, are there different <clears throat> requirements if you proceed based on a personality disorder than if you proceed from a mental abnormality? Well, the Kansas court seems to think there is because there is no definition in the statute of a personality disorder. It wasn't. Well, I was, I was suggesting that you thought there was based on the answer you gave to me. No, Your Honor. You what? think they're both the one and the same. You, you have no different requirements for mental abnormality or personality disorder. In, in either case, the test for civil commitment is the same. Based on the Kansas Supreme Court decision or based on the statute? Based on what you think the law ought to be and, what the, and how the statute is properly interpreted. We believe there is no distinction, there should be no distinction between mental abnormality and personality disorder, that as long as we, we show that mental condition and the dangerousness, that there should not be a distinction. So anybody with a personality disorder that's uh, a danger uh, to himself or others can be, can be civilly committed, regardless of volitional control. That's, that's your position. Right. They have to have some sort of impairment in order to have the diagnosis of a personality disorder. That's part and parcel of a diagnosis of the DSM. But it would be our position it's not limited to volitional control, but could be that laundry list of emotional capacity, emotional impairment, which is even what the Kansas statute contemplates for mental... The DSM that you mentioned, if you look at the definition of personality disorder, and they say pick three out of a list of seven, you could pick out... Uh, habitually doesn't work, uh, doesn't pay debt, is reckless, irritable. That's something, I mean, it's considerably less than in what the, is defined as an abnormality like pedophilia. There, there are a lot of ordinary people who would fit that description. What, what I want to be able to do today, Your Honors, is to convince you that actually that's not true, that an antisocial personality disorder is a severe mental pathology that really does give us sociopaths and psychopaths that cannot conform to our rules. There are a lot of individuals in this country and certainly in our prisons that break the law and they may suffer from antisocial personality traits, but that's entirely separate and distinct from having a full-blown diagnosis of an antisocial personality disorder. Well, your, your statute itself 
uh, when you're talking about a sexually violent predator, you say mental abnormality or personality disorder, which makes the person likely to engage in repeat acts of sexual violence. So that certainly qualifies the uh, personality disorder. It's not any personality or disorder that would do that. That's exactly right, Your Honor. The point is that it's a severe diagnosis, for one thing, and then secondly, it has to tie directly to the kind of dangerous behavior that we believe these individuals will commit if they don't have the treatment. And I take it what, you're, what your statute is trying to get at is, is something more than mere repetitive conduct, mere recidivism. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And, and is the element that distinguishes this kind of behavior from mere repetitiveness some element of lack of control, not necessarily volitional control, but some element of lack of control, perhaps lack of control resulting from delusion, perceptual difficulties, and so on, uh, but but some uh, some aspect of the personality that that gives that individual a a a, uh, a, a lesser chance of controlling behavior in in a way that avoids committing crimes is that fair to say? With a slight exception, it's the dangerousness, the risk of recidivism tied to a mental disorder. To get the diagnosis of a mental disorder, there will be an impairment that's part and parcel of that. Right. But I want to be clear that we don't think there needs to be a, a third separate, very distinguishable constitutional element. I guess, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is it, it seems sensible to call somebody who is just an habitual offender at some dangerous crime uh, or serious crime dangerous. And I take it that what the Kansas statute and other statutes like it is trying to get at by speaking of mental disorder or personality disorder is some extra element beyond the mere probability of doing an act which society has called dangerous. And I think, I think that's 100% accurate. That's exactly where oh. we are, Your Honor. And we think that having that mental abnormality or mental disorder gets us away from just but predicting who's going to what be dangerous. What is that? That's exactly the issue. Uh, what is it that you can, how, what form of words will you use to define what counts as a mental disorder that will distinguish the people whom you want to civilly commit from your mind-run recidivist criminal? That they have to have a mental... Yeah, but what, that's the problem in the case. The problem is what counts as a mental disorder. And the Kansas court thought what counts as a mental disorder is a total inability to control behavior. That's you true. say that's not the right definition. Very well. What is? What is in the statute? A no, no. What is the definition of the word mental disorder that appears in the statute? If a person were to say every person who commits a crime 15 times running is a sociopath and thereby falls within DSM-4, you're not going to permit that. You want to distinguish that sociopath from a person who is really mentally disordered and isn't your mind-run criminal. All right, give me the form of words that will do it. I believe they are there now. That All that's actually... there now is mental disorder. Well, actually, it's mental abnormality and personality disorder. You, in this court, in the Hendricks decision, said that pedophilia certainly qualifies well, as a paraphilia. We have, we have here an antisocial personality disorder. That, that was the diagnosis? That's right, we, along with exhibition. And the state's own expert said uh, in Mr. Crane's trial that approximately 75% of the prison population has antisocial personality disorder. Now, this is an unusual statute where after the person serves a sentence for the crime, the state can then proceed again and get him locked up for a very long time because of uh, his dangerousness. And the mental disorder. We're trying... Okay, okay. but... Most of them, 75% of them, was the testimony, suffer from antisocial personality disorder. So is the state going to be able to proceed again against 75% of the prison population? What is the added element beyond an antisocial personality disorder? 
I would suggest to you that there doesn't need to be an additional element. While I acknowledge the expert said 75% oh. suffers from that in the deposition, he, wasn't, he, he certainly didn't quote empirical studies to demonstrate that. I would suggest that probably 90, 95% of the prison population suffer from antisocial personality traits, but that's different than a disorder. The antisocial personality disorder are psychopaths and, sexual, uh, psychopaths and sociopaths with actual diagnosis, and Ted Bundy is the best example of that. These are really serious individuals, not 75% well, of what the population. Is it, what is it about them that we can isolate that shows that they are really serious beyond the mere repetition of their crime. In other words, let me put the question this way. Under, under the rule you want us to adopt, in which, as you put it, there is no third element, why aren't you free to go after, let's say, every second offender uh, of a sexual crime at the time of release and say, this person is dangerous? Uh, within uh, sufficiently dangerous within the meaning of the statute to, to commit here. Now, you're not claiming you can do that, but uh, I want to know what it is that you have to prove that stands in the way of your being able to do that. We have to show a mental illness. And, and, and that's a psychiatrically approved condition that in other words, you can get an in the DSM. To, right. Then you're back no, that, just, no, I'm you're sorry, back not to, anything in the DSM. Then you're back to Justice Ginsburg's question. Uh, uh, which, which, which is very much like Justice O'Connor's. Uh, if all you've got to do is satisfy one criterion in the DSM, you're going to pick up, on Justice O'Connor's uh, reference to the experts, 75% probably of your prison population, and, and based on the, the categorization Justice Ginsburg described, it would seem to me you would pick up a substantial part of the population outside of prison. Now, I know you don't want to do that, but on your theory that there is, there is no third element beyond this categorization, what stands in the way of your doing that? The actual diagnosis that those folks actually have those diagnoses and are sexually violent. Being sexually violent absolutely limits that. What All I would right. Are you saying then that in the example Justice Ginsburg gave you, what was it, four out of seven in the list? Three of seven. Uh, that is, is, as long as, as the, uh, uh, the, the expert witness says, yes, this person uh, is subject to four out of those uh, seven characters, uh, 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 personality traits, uh, that that person, uh, if a sexual offender, uh, could be locked up under this statute? They could be committed for treatment under this, this statute, yes, Your Honor. Wow. And Mr. Crane, for, what, what I would want you to know, though, is that it is not a circular, just because these individuals have committed crimes doesn't mean they have an antisocial personality disorder. Of the seven criteria that are listed that can certainly be supplemented by independent um, judgment of psychiatrists. But it would be very, it, it, it would be, on Justice Ginsburg's example, it would be very easy to prove. It could be if they actually have that diagnosis and have those personality traits and have done that behavior. If I, although it is not in the record, what I would like this court to know is that out of 5,000 individuals that have been screened in this process in Kansas, a mere one, less than one and a half percent have actually been civilly committed, and we have rejected. Trust the prosecutor then, but I mean that's uh, not something that that we would generally do. I mean, we we thought of all prosecutors as being wise and kind and good, and then there would be a whole lot of rights that we wouldn't have to worry about. But I understand. Justice Kennedy brought up in, in Hendricks a concern, and this case seems to fit that. That is, this man entered a plea bargain. I'm sorry? He entered a plea bargain, right? And he got a relatively short time. And then, through this civil process, without beyond a reasonable doubt as the standard, just a preponderance. No, it is a reasonable doubt. It is beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes. It is. But it's a civil proceeding. It is, but we have that higher standard. May I? Still, you could you could get to where you were, or even beyond. I mean, you could get to the full amount of time that the person could have been sentenced if there had been no plea bargain, and if you the maximum penalty. Because this is indefinite, right? It's indefinite with annual reviews. 
and they are allowed to be released when they have uh, been determined safe to be at large. And, and while it is not part of the record, I would want you to know that Mr. Crane is in transitional release now after about three years in this treatment program. Well, what do the it's annual reviews, what do they deal with? Is it possible at, a, at the end of an annual review for the person to be uh, released? <clears throat> yes, could go to the transitional release phase and then the conditional release phase and then ultimately to final discharge. The annual release ensures, the annual review rather, ensures that they're not warehoused, that they have an opportunity to come to the court on an annual basis. What does the court have to find uh, in order to release them? They, it is no longer beyond a reasonable doubt? Then it's pro the state has to show, the, I'm sorry, the, pre the uh, respondent has to show probable cause that they have changed. The state, as a matter of policy, never objects when the, the, our psychiatrists say they're safe to be in the next phase of the program or the next. We've never objected to that. We have six that are actually out of the facility now and in either transitional and or conditional and, and release. Isn't it a frequent case, though, that the psychiatrists say, well, we can't tell until we clinically observe him, and we can't clinically observe him until he's in a normal environment. I mean, the that hasn't happened in the six so far that, that have, have been released. The American Psychiatric Association says in their brief that the, quote, antisocial personality disorder, end quote, which is DSM-4 at 701706, applies to 40 to 60 percent among the male sentence population. So are you saying that 40 to 60 percent of the male sentenced population could be committed for life civilly? Are you saying that DSM-4 is not the standard? Or are you saying that the American Psychiatric Association is wrong when it tells us 40 percent to 60 percent fit within the DSM-4 definition? In terms of the antisocial personality disorder alone, I don't know. What I would say is that certainly 40 so. to 60 percent. Did they right. say how they know? I, I, you know, I can pull Well, I, I don't know if they know or did, not. Did they I know they know better than I do. Did they say that 40 to 60 percent are beyond a reasonable doubt suffering from a, an antisocial personality disorder? I doubt that. Right. And I but doubt I that, that it applied to sex offenses. The question is, is DSM-4 the standard? And if DSM-4 is not the standard, what is? That's what I think all of us, or the, several of us anyway, are trying to get to. And the, maybe you, you cannot address that further, but if you could. Uh, the, the DSM absolutely is the standard in the psychiatric profession, but it is not the Bible and is not the only thing psychiatrists use. They very much can supplement that with their own judgment, and in fact that's part of the prefatory language in the DSM. May I ask you this question? I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about whether the instructions were adequate and whether you think the instructions were adequate. And one of the reasons I have the question is they do not seem on their face to require any finding of volitional impairment. And it seems to me we might look at volitional impairment in three different ways. One, it has to be total inability to comply, some inability to comply, or that it's totally irrelevant to the issue. Which of those three positions is yours? The last, that it's irrelevant it's to a diagnosis. Enough. There's no need to show any volitional impairment in order to obtain a commitment under this statute, so the instruction is correct. That, that is absolutely the state's position. It's also unnecessary to show any other kind of impairment in addition to the two elements that you're describing. In order to get a, in terms of the instructions, that's true, because to get a diagnosis, you have to have an impairment. You can't be diagnosed with anything under DSM without having an impairment. Well, indeed, so it's part and parcel. Difficulty in controlling, not, not utter inability to control conduct, but difficulty in controlling conduct. Don't she you have to show that? She didn't say I, that. I don't believe we have to show that. How what, can the person be dangerous? Because they have this the reason of the personality disorder. If the personality disorder does not produce a difficulty in, in controlling conduct, in in order to link I together, say, the I thought, I thought you conceded that you have to show difficulty in controlling conduct, and if you don't, this is a quite different case from what I thought. And I, I misspoke, Your Honor. The, within the definition of the mental abnormality itself, we don't have to show lack of control, but the statutory language then leads us into that you have this mental abnormality or disorder that makes you likely or that predisposes you. So there is the connection that we have to show. Well, well in, no, in other words, it predisposes you to do things you want to do. Yeah. So that, that seems to me doesn't answer the question. 
Our and where is it in the statutory language that talks about volitional control? It doesn't. The mental abnormality is defined in the statute, and it does mention both volitional and emotional capacity. But personality disorder does not. It is not defined, and I think that's because it's such a common term. The legislature didn't define it. No, mental abnormality was a very unique term. So I think they chose to define it, but they include emotional as well as volitional impairments there. And if the Kansas Supreme Court is right, then you must strike out emotional because we could prove it under the statute by an emotional impairment that they say is not valid. Only a volitional impairment is allowed. And, and so it but, but you say emotional is, and, and, and I guess emotional impairment, I suppose, would describe uh, every sociopath in the country. I mean, I thought a sociopath, by definition, was somebody who just didn't care about society's standards. That is absolutely well, one that part... would satisfy as an emotional impairment, wouldn't it? It is an emotional impairment. Yes, Your Honor, that's true. So but the Kansas court we, would say we that... Back that we, I think we get back to the point that on your theory... Any sociopath who has committed uh, a, a sexual offense can be committed under the statute uh, upon release. But it takes more than having the likelihood of committing more sex crimes and or not having any empathy before you could be diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder. And so it would there... Take, it would take four out of seven on... Justice Ginsburg's list. It takes three, actually three of yeah, seven, seven but it does make a significant diagnosis. It is a mental pathology. It isn't something that... Beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, Your Honor, you're exactly right. Beyond a reasonable doubt, we have to be able to... It's those three things beyond a reasonable doubt. That definition doesn't say trait. It says antisocial personality disorder, and you're familiar with this list. You could be a liar, you could be a malingerer, and you could not pay your debts, and you and you'd make those three. I would suggest to you that's part of the evaluative process of a psychologist <coughs> then in saying this is someone who is likely to continue to be sexually violent. The if that's all they've says, done. The prosecutor says DCM, this category fits, antisocial personality disorder, any three of, and I just gave you three from Right, this. but that doesn't mean that one of the experts would say that makes them fit under this law to be sexually violent predators. They may have an antisocial personality disorder, but not that it makes them likely to reoffend, not that the, the psychiatrists at Larned would suggest they need to be civilly committed. General Stovall, you have read Hendricks, as all of us have, and, it, and the part that's on substantive due process is not long. There's four pages, and in those four pages, there are six references to people, not Hendricks, but people who are unable to control their behavior, confinement those who are unable to control their dangerousness. Are you, you're essentially saying we should just read out that language. It was incautious. Is that what you're telling us? I am, because I don't believe that was central or necessary to the holding. What I believe is, in the majority opinion, you were using that to describe the mental abnormality, just to talk about it's a substitute. On, on page the 360 holding, of the... The holding was indeed described differently. Uh, it, at one point, said uh, it did mention volitional impairment, but it said the following, the Kansas Act is plainly of a kind, these other civil commitment statutes. It requires a finding of future dangerousness and then links that finding to the existence of a mental abnormality or personality disorder that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the person to control his dangerous behavior. That's, that's, that's exactly... The, the crux of the holding of the case, and that portion does not say anything about volitional impairment, just inability or difficulty in controlling behavior. And what I would suggest to you is on page 360 of the opinion, it becomes very clear the way that that phrase and those phrases were being used. Um, this admitted lack of volitional control, coupled with prediction of future dangerousness, adequately distinguished Hendricks from other dangerous people who were perhaps more properly dealt with through the criminal proceedings. <clears throat> the way of saying um, admitted lack of volitional control is another way of simply talking about the mental impairment, couple that with dangerousness, and then you get the two historic requirements of mental illness and dangerousness if, that if you've always required. If a jury instruction were couched in the terms that Justice Scalia just quoted as stating the holding in Hendricks, uh, would you find that jury instruction correct and satisfactory? I would find it 
longer than it needed to be and more inclusive than it needed to be because would it be would it be constitutionally erroneous would you be yes I I, I would say that it so, that it would so be we, because it goes that's beyond the holding in Hendricks we've got to pull back from Hendricks then in your view my view is that what you said in Hendricks was mental illness that makes somebody dangerous in sexually violent ways yeah but if Justice Scalia's quotations correctly stated the holding in Hendricks I think you were telling us we have got to draw back from Hendricks. Again, what I'm saying, the mental illness makes them likely to reoffend in sexually violent ways. Why you say we have to, you, you say we have to draw back from that statement? What what in that statement is wrong? That that we have to require that we have to show the um, the difficulty of maintaining their behavior of, of controlling their behavior. The statement says I don't have the exact. Yeah. It requires a finding of future dangerousness and links that finding to the existence of a mental abnormality or personality disorder that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the person to control his dangerous behavior. What is wrong in that? Other than leaving out beyond a reasonable doubt, which your statute can tell. Right, right. What is, what is wrong in it? Only that if, if we have to require the finding of that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for them to control their behavior. You're concerned that the last sentence... Is that finding? How are they future? Wow. It's, it's because they're they have a mental abnormality. They've committed the past acts. They're likely to do it in the future. They have this diagnosis. And so it's part and parcel, and common sense would tell you that there's a link and a bridge, but not that it's a separate statutory term that needs to be shown, and certainly not a constitutional one. Thank you, General Stovall. Thank you. Uh, we'll hear from you, Mr. Donham. Chief Justice, may it please the court. I think the major disagreement between the state, uh, state's view of this and Mr. Crane's view is not how dangerous is an individual, but why are they dangerous? The Kansas Sexual Predator Act was clearly written to limit the application to those who are dangerous on account of their mental illness. You have a nice speaking voice, but could you raise it just a little bit? I'm sorry, Judge. Is, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Excuse me. Is that better? Okay. Mr. Crane sought a jury instruction at his trial that was consistent with this court's decision in Hendricks. There is, or was known to Mr. Crane at that time, only three forms of a mental abnormality or mental illness that historically satisfied involuntary, indefinite civil commitments. And that was the inability to care for oneself, the absolution of criminal responsibility or incompetency, and the inability to, to exercise self-control. Now that term, inability to exercise self-control, is defined in the passage of volitional control. The ability to exercise choice and to make a decision concerning your behavior. You, you say it's defined. Uh, where do we find that definition, Mr. Donner? Your, your Honor, in the Kansas statute itself, it's 59-29A02. Uh, the definitional portion defines what a sexually violent predator is. Can you tell us where we find that in, in the papers? It's the first page of the uh, appendix to the petitioner's brief, I think. <coughs> ah, Your Honor, joint appendix, excuse me, joint appendix, uh, page 157. That would have been instruction number nine that was given to the jury. I'm talking about the instruction, I'm talking about the statute. What is the statutory provision that's in question that, that, that makes, that requires, you say this Kansas statute requires a volitional impairment. Isn't that what you say? No, I'm sorry. The, it's, it's our opinion that the Kansas Sexually Violent Predator Act must be limited to that narrow subgroup of recidivists those individuals who cannot control their behavior. So that uh, a recidivist who will be a recidivist because he's delusional, 
and he thinks that uh, every woman he meets is inviting crude sexual behavior. He's fully able to control himself if he doesn't think that the woman is inviting crude sexual behavior, but he happens to think that every woman he meets is inviting it, and he would not be covered because that is not a volitional impairment. He cannot constitutionally be covered. I agree with that, and and may I may I follow that up with uh, perhaps uh, the Kansas Sexual Predator Act has a number of subsections, one of which is directly directly focused on the type of individual you just mentioned in your hypothetical. Which one? Which one is that? You, All right, subsection. Your Honor, in the definition of a, uh, the, I'm sorry, I, I I'm sorry, I don't have that. Uh, it is the Kansas statute on the sexually violent predator. Well, I have it here with a number. Of, I, you referred to one subsection. I'm asking what subsection that is. Your Honor, it's in the statute. I don't believe it's in e- any of the briefs or in the joint appendix. But the Kansas Sexual Predator Act reaches those who have been absolved of criminal irresponsibility. Those. Well, but you're, you're telling us now what the Kansas Sexual Predator Act does uh, cite us to some sections. I don't. We're not interested in some general summary. Your Honor, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have the statute number. I thought your case. submission here was not that the act didn't cover your client, but you're you're supporting the holding of the Kansas Supreme Court that the act does cover your client, but in as much as insofar as it does, it's unconstitutional if it goes beyond. Volitional impairment isn't isn't that what this case is about, Your Honor? The, this the facts of the Crane case dealt specifically with Mr. Crane and Mr. Crane alone. At prior to his criminal trial, he sought a defense of insanity, and that was ruled out by the state. That left him with only one feasible uh, mental illness, which might qualify uh, him for commitment under the Sexual Predator Act, as understood by Mr. Crane, following your decision in Hendricks. And that was that he was unable to control his dangerous sexual behavior. It doesn't enable... I, excuse me. Get, 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 I, just, I really don't know what we have before us here. I, I understood the issue before this court to be the fact that the Kansas Supreme Court held the Sexually Violent Predators Act which we had just said in Hendricks was constitutional. The Kansas Supreme Court held it unconstitutional, yet again, uh, as applied to someone who, like your client, has only an emotional or personality disorder rather than a volitional disorder. Isn't that what the Kansas Supreme Court opinion said? There has to be a volitional disorder or else it is unconstitutional to apply the Kansas statute. That's what the Kansas Supreme Court said. All right. Now tell us why, why it is constitutional to commit someone who, who makes sexual advances to women because of a volitional impairment, but not constitutional to commit someone who is delusional. He is just as dangerous. He is just as mentally impaired. And the only difference is he's delusional rather than cannot control his, uh, his will. Why, why is the one unconstitutional and the other constitutional? I don't understand it. Your Honor, if, if I have to fault the opinion in the, of the Kansas Supreme Court, is, it is that it expanded its decision that was directly for Mr. Crane under the specific subsection of the Kansas Sexual Predator Act that dealt with individuals who had been found criminally responsible. And it expanded that in its terminology to give effect to all commitments. The the Sexual Predator Act is and should be um, available for individuals such as your hypothetical. Individuals who, because of some psychosis or hallucinations, have, in effect, lost their ability to control their behavior as well, although perhaps through some better recognized form. Um, there, is, there are specific subsections of the Kansas Sexual Predator Act 
that would pull those people in for a commitment proceeding, even though they don't go forward, forward with trial or if they've been found right. not guilty by reason of insanity. Mr. Crane, however, was in that unique section of people who have, who have been found legally responsible, were competent to stand trial, were imprisoned, and upon release, this, this new group of individuals that are now subject to involuntary commitment for some mental disorder, this court found that the appropriate uh, level of, of mental illness, if you will, for Mr. Hendricks was his professed inability to control his behavior. And well, that, that, you say we, we, we found that. Uh, I realize that the opinion refers to the fact that he was unable to control his behavior. Uh, are, are you saying that was the, the, that was the holding of the case? Your Honor, as, as I read, Hendricks stands for the proposition that the Kansas Act is constitutional because, as with Mr. Hendricks, what it determined was that the state was not seeking to involuntarily commit people based on dangerousness alone, which would have been absolutely unconstitutional under Fucha versus Louisiana. It seized upon this additional element which separated and distinguished Mr. Hendricks from the larger class of just garden variety recidivists. It held that given that limiting factor, which, the, which limiting factor was difficulty or impossibility of controlling behavior, right? The, the, I think the exact language of the Kansas statute, or at least of Mr. Hendricks, I'm sorry, the opinion or, of Mr. Hendricks, was he admitted that he was unable to control his behavior. The only way he himself could be sure he would never offend again was for him to die. I just read the, I just read the portion of the, of the opinion uh, that I think the most relevant, and what it says is difficult, if not impossible, to control behavior. To show utter impossibility to control behavior would be very difficult. That, that's what it said. Now, now, you equate that difficulty or, if not impossibility, to control behavior with volitional impairment. Why do you, why do you equate that, as I think the Kansas Supreme Court did? They, they seem to say that if there's no volitional impairment, there cannot be this difficulty or impossibility of controlling behavior. But that doesn't seem to me to be true. Well, when Mr. Hendricks professed that he could not control his behavior, that's an indication that when confronted with temptation, he was unable to exercise his free will. That's right. In Hendricks, it happened to be a volitional impairment. But why do you assert that that is the only reason for which one can say a person is unable to control his behavior? Why isn't delusion a reason why a person can't control his behavior? He doesn't know what he's confronted with. Your Honor, I'm not trying to limit the what a psychiatrist or a psychologist might be able to say affects ability, the ability of an individual to conform his behavior to society's requirements. I, I'm not standing here today as a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a murky subject at best, and even those who work in it disagree. The, the, the principal distinction that I take from the Hendricks decision is that Mr. Hendricks could not have been constitutionally involuntarily committed absent that additional element that set him apart from others who simply behave out of clear choice because they lack any respect or moral value. Well, I would have thought, really, that that is not what we limited it to in Hendricks, that a delusional lack of control would be entirely sufficient constitutionally as, a, as it relates to a lack of control. That it could be volitional or delusional. That um, the Kansas court went too far in requiring only volitional as a constitutional standard. Your Honor, I would agree with that. Yeah, so, so if you think the court erred. I, 
I, I agree with that, and I hope I haven't misled the court. I've, I've been acting on behalf of so Mr. So you agree that the Kansas Supreme Court went too far? I agree that they perhaps uh, imposed too strict a limit on these additional elements that have to be found in order to involuntarily commit. But that I, there has to be some additional elements. Absolutely. And I the, the most appropriate one at hand in this case was volitional. Were there any other additional elements that might have been argued uh, in your case? And if not, what are the additional elements that might we might encounter in cases somewhat like this? Your Honor, the, to the first part of your question, the only available argument that we could have made, the only conceivable jury instruction that would have been consistent with the contradictory evidence at trial and this Court's opinion in Hendricks was a, a demand for a jury instruction requiring the jury to find that it was his mental abnormality or his personality disorder that made him be likely to reoffend because it interfered with his ability to control his behavior. So what are the words that you want there? That is, imagine I'm talking about the set of people who are very dangerous. Imagine I'm talking about the set of people who are very dangerous because of a mental problem. In defining mental problem, we could have one subset that has a cognitive disorder well beyond the normal person, including the normal prisoner. We could have a set of people who have an emotional disorder well beyond what the ordinary prisoner recidivist has. And we could be talking about what the Kansas Supreme Court thought it was talking about in this case, the set of people who arguably have a volitional disorder. In respect to that, it sounded to me, if that's the subject of this case, that the Kansas court used the word cannot control, whereas our court used the word difficult, if not impossible, to control. The only argument here being if there is some difference between those two, and I would think there is. But how should we put that in your opinion? Would it satisfy you if we said, this case is about volitional disorders, and there the Constitution permits us to take a dangerous person and commit him civilly if his ability to control his behavior is significantly a lot, quite a lot, less than the ordinary person, including the ordinary prisoner sentenced in a, in a, in a penitentiary. How do you want, I, in other words, I'm looking for the proper standard. Cannot sounds too tough. Difficult, if not impossible, maybe that's all right, but that's caused confusion. So what's your standard? Your Honor, I, um, I know the state has touted the, uh, the descriptive adjective adequate control. I'm not sure if I know how to answer that. I would think that if you perform the criminal act, your control was not adequate. And so it would seem that um, what the medical personnel are going to have to end up testifying and what eventually will be a question for the jury to decide is whether or not, given the opportunity uh, and the chance for success at committing a criminal act, this individual chose to do that as an exercise of his or her free will, or whether or not some overriding mental condition compelled them to act or disabled their capacity to refrain from acting. I, I, don't, I really don't understand where we are now. You're, you're, you're objecting, as I understand it now, just to the jury instruction. I mean, we didn't take this case to decide whether the jury instruction was right under the statute or not. You, you don't challenge the statute. You think the statute's fine. It's just a bad jury instruction that occurred. Your Honor, as, as I read the, the Kansas statute, uh, the legislative body intended that the mental defect 
cause the individual to be likely to commit future predatory acts of violence. It says, it says exactly that, and you think that's okay? Yes, and this court... And the Kansas Supreme Court didn't think it was okay. I disagree with that. I think, and allow me to follow up, that this court in Hendricks reinforced the notion that the Kansas Act is constitutional because there did exist, at least with Mr. Hendricks, an additional element that because of that, because of his mental illness, he was likely to offend. The Kansas Supreme Court was presented simply the fact pattern in Crane's case, and that fact pattern was essentially, or at least the state's position was, we don't have to prove any kind of additional element whatsoever. They have to prove the causality. You're saying they don't have to prove causality? I mean, the way the statute reads is who suffers from a mental abnormality or personality disorder which makes the person likely to engage in repeat acts of sexual violence. It's not just that he's likely to commit future acts of sexual violence, but it also must be shown that the reason he's likely to do it is because that is caused by a mental abnormality or personality disorder. I mean, it seems to me the statute says exactly what you think it ought to say, and you're now complaining about the jury instruction? We did object to the jury instruction because we felt it did not adequately address the theme that the state carried to the jury. What the state presented to the jury through all four of its expert witnesses is that Mr. Crane satisfied the definition of a sexually violent predator because of his prior repetitive history of criminal offenses. Their own expert, Dr. Mabugat, even testified on the stand that in satisfying this definition, if the jurors only take his current mental status coupled with his instant offense for the aggravated sexual battery, he's not a sexually violent predator. Dr. Mabugat went on to testify. Well, just a minute, Mr. Dunn. The question presented by the state in its petition for certiorari is a very general one, whether the 14th Amendment requires the state to prove that it is sex. And I think if you're going to bring up a jury instruction, you're required to cross-petition for certiorari and raise that yourself. You didn't do that, did you? Yes, sir, I did. I filed in my response an objection to the... The Supreme Court held the jury instruction bad. Did it not? I'm sorry, on the petition? Just answer Justice Stevens' question. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Is it not correct that the Kansas Supreme Court held that the jury was not properly instructed? That's correct. It was not properly instructed, not because it was not instructed in accordance with the Kansas statute, but because if it had been instructed in accordance with the Kansas statute, that would have been unconstitutional. Wasn't that the basis of the holding? And you're saying the Kansas statute is not unconstitutional. I mean, the whole basis for the Kansas Supreme Court thinking that jury instruction, which followed the statute, was unconstitutional, was, of course, that the statute was unconstitutional. But it seems to me what you're saying here is that the statute is okay. Didn't you say the statute's okay? No. What I said, Your Honor, is that the statute requires that an individual susceptible to being involuntarily committed must have a mental illness that makes him or her likely to reoffend. That's what it says, right? That's correct. What we ask, our jury instruction was intended to clarify or to put a face to what is intended by this word make. The term make has a lot of definitions. And our version of it was that Crane's antisocial personality disorder had to compel him to behave in a certain way. The Kansas Supreme Court appeared to hold that a person must be completely unable to control his behavior in order to meet what it thought the constitutional standard is under the Due Process Clause. That's how I read the Kansas opinion, that it thought that there had to be a 
total, complete lack of control, not just substantial, not just adequate lack, a complete lack, in order to meet U.S. constitutional standards. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. it well, I don't think I do. I don't think that's what Hendricks said was the constitutional standard. Yeah. Some lack of control, but I hadn't thought it had to be 100% or complete. I thought the Kansas court got it wrong and went too far. There has to be something there, but probably not complete. Your Honor, I suppose the difference may lie in, in, in what is meant by total or absolute lack of control. No doubt an individual um, who, who has um, certain designs to commit a, an act uh, may exercise at times some degree of control over his or her behavior. The, the essential element in these involuntary commitment statutes that must be kept in mind is, number one, they're, they're civil. They're not, they're not criminal. Number two, it's to... Uh, commit the person to a mental hospital for treatment of the mental disease or defect. And this mental disease or defect must be significant enough to warrant depriving this person of their liberty. Yes, a, a, a significant or substantial lack of control. But to try to move toward an irresistible impulse standard would fly in the face of what the American Psychiatric Association thinks is likely. I mean, it just, um, it seemed to me the Kansas court went somewhat too far in establishing the Constitution, what it thought the constitutional requirement was. I'm sorry, was that a question? Excuse me. <laughs> no, you can I interpret won't. it as you wish. <laughs> <laughs> You're free to dispute my interpretation well, of that. Well, the, some of these terms are, are pretty slippery, and of course they're all taken in context of what does, does, a, does a psychiatrist mean by them. Uh, I, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I think that this court can set a, a benchmark that can be followed. Oh, by we're not psychiatrists or psychologists either. That's that's part of the problem in, 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 in our setting as precise a benchmark as you would like us to set. Well, what the Kansas Supreme Court quote the very words from Hendricks that Justice Scalia referred to before to make such a finding by linking future dangerousness to a mental abnormality or personal disorder that makes it difficult, if not impossible, to control such behavior. That's what the Kansas Supreme Court repeated. Where you seem to have conceded that it went beyond that. No, I think my concession to the to the fact that the Kansas Supreme Court may have expanded its decision for Mr. Crane too far. Uh, in Here. and and by doing that, it in essence, if you will, limited. Um, the application of the act by taking the particular fact pattern, Mr. Crane, for which the only available and the only reasonable uh, qualifying mental uh, defect would have been the inability to control behavior and saying that it's now required for all persons. What the Kansas Supreme Court did was effectively cut off, uh, I think, unfairly the ability of the state to incapacitate people who have other type of significant mental disorders, such as Justice Scalia has pointed out, uh, the hallucinate, hallucinations, uh, the psychoses, uh, those are a different breed of mental illnesses would, with different would, effects. Would, would your objections uh, <clears throat> and, the Kansas, and perhaps the Kansas court's objections have been met if instruction number nine, page 156 of the Joint Appendix, said that mental abnormality means a congenital or acquired condition substantially affecting the emotional or relational capacity? Um, if I were to write the instruction, it would have read it, it is a acquired or congenital condition that affects the emotional or volitional capacity to the degree that 
the person is unable to exercise self-control. Just what about a person who thinks other people are move, are like rocks? You know, I mean, he can control himself. He just has a totally bizarre emotional, uh, uh, totally bizarre emotional situation. Una- an autistic kind of person, unable to understand emotions at all. What do we do with that person? Absolutely mad as a hatter in common parlance and also dangerous. Well, if he's dangerous because... Yeah, he's dangerous because he's autistic or has no sense whatsoever of what a feeling is. All right? Now, can he control himself? Absolutely. He has no volitional impairment. He just has this bizarre emotional situation. What do we do about that person? And, of course, I'll imagine it as bizarre as you want. I would... I would say that he's an appropriate candidate for an involuntary commitment. Right. And so the what's the standard there that we use? That he would be uh, so unable... So we can't do it with control because control has to do with volition. This would be a person uh, susceptible to commitment because he's unable to care for himself and therefore poses a danger. No, he cares for himself perfectly. He just has this emotional impairment. What do we do? It's a problem. Yes, it is. It, it, it's a significant problem because we're talking about depriving people of their liberty, and we're, we're basing it on the testimony of people who don't fully understand their field of expertise at times, which is why this court should set a high benchmark to preclude the inadvertent commitment of someone who really shouldn't have gone to a mental hospital. I'm particularly distressed over the use of an antisocial personality disorder in that it is it is given simply to someone who has a history of offenses. So that history of offenses provides the basis for the diagnosis, and it provides the basis for the prediction of future dangerousness. In effect, the state seeks to involuntarily commit someone because they have a long prior criminal history. My time is almost up if there are no more questions. Thank you, Mr. Dunham. The case is submitted.